We're continuing today through our summer series through the book of the Judges. And today we're going to consider Judges 10, 11, and 12. Um, because we're covering so many chapters, you will really benefit from keeping your Bible open to those chapters as much of the reading will take place during the sermon, throughout the sermon. Uh, we're also, I forgot to say this in the beginning, we, we have some ladies that are here from Operation Christmas Children, Child, and um, we're so thankful you're here. We're thankful for your ministry. They're visiting us because we, we partner with them every December, so they're visiting the churches in town. We're praying for much gospel fruit for what you do. We're thankful you're here. Salvation by faith alone is one of the hardest doctrines to believe in the entire Bible. Not because we don't believe God loves and gives grace, or because we don't believe we're sinners. We struggle to believe salvation by faith alone because we all have a lingering commitment to legalism. The most wretched person you can think of. That person, if they simply believe, they would be saved. This is radical, this is so extreme that it almost seems unfair. But it is not. Though the sin of man runs deep, the grace of God runs deeper. Though we are deserving of wrath, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to absorb the entire wrath of God that should be on us. In order to believe that salvation is indeed by faith alone, you have to believe two things. First, sin runs so deeply in our hearts that there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. Second, grace runs so deeply in God's heart that he is willing and able to save depraved sinners like you and I. Today we're going to meet a judge that is the epitome of depravity. He does the unthinkable. He sins gravely against his God, against his family, against his daughter. And yet, in the book of Hebrews, he is commended for his faith. And in him, we see both the depths of the folly of man and the heights of the grace of God. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It follows the conquest of the promised land, Canaan, in the book of Joshua. So now that we come to the land that is conquered, the question is, will Israel be able to keep the promised land? This would depend on their ability not to be influenced by the false gods of the people of Canaan. And yet... What we keep seeing over and over again is that Canaan is making a home 
in Israel's heart. Theologians call this the canonization of Israel. Israel inclina Israel's inclination from the beginning of the book was to pursue not the one true God, but the gods of the land of Canaan. Judges 2, 11 through 13. And the people of Israel did what was, what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they ab abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. This is chapter 2. So what we see throughout the book of Judges is this cycle brought about because of Israel's idolatry. The cycle is called the cycle of Judges, which starts with the sin of Israel. Then we see God handing Israel over to serve other nations. And then Israel presents its supplication to the Lord, and the Lord, through a judge, provides salvation. So far, we've seen four of these full cycles, and one minor judge that we did not see a cycle in him at all. In chapter 3, we met Othniel from Judah, a model judge who delivered the people of Israel. And then we met Ehud the left-handed assassin who gave the people peace in the land for 80 years, but who used deception to overcome his enemy. Then we met Deborah and Barak, a woman who had to remind the warrior that the Lord was with him. And finally, finally a couple of weeks ago, we met Gideon, a great warrior, who became self-absorbed and sought to exalt himself. We also met Gideon's son, the wicked Abimelech, who ruled over Israel for three years after he killed Gideon's 70 sons, and who himself was killed by a stone that was cast by an unknown woman out of a tower which crushed his head much like the head of the serpent would be crushed we've seen progressive decadence in these cycles the moral compass is clearly on a downward spiral the distinction between these judges and the leaders of canaan are becoming less and less noticeable israel who's called to be holy, distinct, and to represent God before the nations is becoming more and more like the nations around them. Today we're going to meet a judge that was a great warrior like Gideon, but he was foolish. And in his folly, he thought he could bargain victory with God. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah failed to trust that the Lord would give him a victory, so he attempted to secure his success through a vow, a tragic and foolish vow. And friends, here's what I think, here's what I think we need to learn from this story. 
If we receive anything good from God, it is not because we have anything good to offer. If we receive anything good from God, it's because God is gracious. Had Jephthah believed this, his tragic vow would not be necessary. So let us believe this today. That we need not bargain with God. Because what he offers us is a work that is finished. So today as we go through the text, we're going to let three words guide us. First we're going to consider the word repentance. Then we're going to consider the word folly, wisdom. And then we're going to consider the word folly. So let's consider repentance. Now, I know that our text for today is chapters 10, 11, and 12. But our narrative about Jephthah starts in verse 6. We'll come back and briefly talk about the minor judges here and some minor judges at the end. But Jephthah's narrative really bring, begins in verse 6. Remember, the Bible was written without chapters. So the authors of the Bible used very often repeated sentences and clauses to divide the book into sections. All six major judges are introduced with the formula we find in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria and Sidon and Moab, the gods of the Amorites and the god of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So this is the introduction of a major judge. Every major judge we've met has been introduced like this. In the cycle of judges, this is, this is the sin. It's the sin part of the cycle. Continuing in verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Today we're going to worry more about the Ammonites. Next week when we meet Samson, we'll worry more about the Philistines. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. So in our cycle of judges, this is servitude. Servitude to the Ammonites. The Ammonites were people who, le who lived east of the Jordan River. And they were descendants. You can read this in Genesis 19. They were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. So... As it is often the case with the peoples that surrounded Israel, there was a certain degree of relationship between Israel and the Ammonites. The oppression was taking place beyond the Jordan. This is where the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled. They were the first tribes to be settled before even before Israel crosses over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. This is a rather remote area 
of the promised land. We also see that the oppression was in Ephraim. Ephraim is the largest of the northern tribes. And also we see that the oppression was taking place in Judah and in Benjamin. These are the southern tribes. So these geographical references are important because thus far we have seen regional oppression. But the oppression that we find from the Ammonites here is widespread. It's all over the land. Let's continue in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our gods and have served the Baals. This is where the supplication begins. Israel is pleading for delivery from the Lord, but, but look at how the Lord responds in verse 11. The Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonians oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. It seems like God's had enough. It seems like God is ready to forsake His covenant with Israel. Could He? Could God be forsaking His covenant with His people? No. Never. God never breaks His promises. What God is doing here is He's warning Israel that surface deep repentance is not repentance at all. Repentance is not lip service, but repentance bears fruit of righteousness. When the Pharisees come and ask John the Baptist to baptize them, he calls them a race of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Sometimes we can sense that the Lord is being harsh on us. It seems like the Lord is being harsh with Israel here. Sometimes we can feel discouraged because we sense that the Lord does not hear our supplication. But often when the Lord is harsh, when we feel the heavy hand of the Lord, He's doing that with a purpose, for a reason. The Lord chastised His children so that His children will seek true repentance. And we see this here in Israel. Israel first proclaimed that they were repentant. And God said, no, you're not. But then after the head hand of the Lord, the heavy hand of the Lord, in verse 15, we see that Israel heeded the warning. Look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us 
whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So look at the look here at the fruit in keeping with repentance. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. This is true repentance. But why? What do we learn in these verses about the marks of true repentance? Well, first, we see confession of sin. We have sinned. We have sinned against you. Confession is when we affirm what God affirms. And God tells us that we are sinners. So in confessing our sins, we're saying, God, you are right. We are. I wonder, does confession of sin, does confession of your transgressions of the Lord's law play a role in your daily life? How often do we sin against God? How often should we confess our sins to God? But second, we also see here that there is an acceptance of consequences. The people say, Lord, do to us as you please. When we confess our sins, we're made free of the condemnation of sin, but the consequences of sin often linger. Why? Because God wants to teach us to fight sin and find victory over sin. You know, we know this in parenting, right? It's hard. It's hard to issue a punishment on children. And sometimes we want to withhold it, right? We want to say, well, you've done wrong, but I, I don't want to punish you. And sometimes it's good to do that. But the right process for disciplining children is, I love you, I forgive you, but you are going to have to learn this lesson from your consequences. Israel is saying, Lord, we accept the consequences. Third, we see a desire to change. Israel put away the foreign gods from among them, the evidence that the change was genuine is seen in Israel's willingness to put away idolatry. Change of behavior is, is a necessary result of repentance, not as a means of justification, but as a byproduct of God's grace in our lives. Now, when we change, it does not mean that we become perfectly sanctified. But it means that we're walking towards perfect sanctification. When we see Christ, we'll be as He is. We also see that there is a consecration to the Lord. It's not only that they're turning away from the idols, they're turning towards God. Not only did Israel turn away from the idols, they said, Lord, we will serve you and not the false gods. This is different from what I see in cultural Christianity in America, which is no Christianity at all. By the way, whenever I refer to cultural Christianity, I'm, I'm referring to a false religion that produces no salvation. Cultural Christians are very good at seeing the idols in the culture. Lord, look at the Canaanites. They worship Baal and Ashroth. 
Lord, bring justice on this wicked people. But they're not good at seeing their own idols. Friends, we must not find ourselves justified because we live in a wicked culture. They're wrong, but we are responsible for our idolatry as well. Our culture is wicked. But apart from Christ, so are we. The mark of biblical Christianity is that we understand that none of our works will ever justify us before God. Only the work of Christ saves us. Finally, we see the compassion of the Lord. Look at the second half of verse 16. And he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. What a beautiful language. The Lord, who has perfect patience, becomes impatient. Why? Because his people are experiencing misery. This shows the heart of God. God's emotions run deeply for those who are his. So we see Israel truly repenting. But we also see that the consequences of the sin of Israel are yet to come. God is not condemning his people, but he's teaching his people. We learned that the Amorites were encamped to wage war against Israel. So the question at the end of chapter 10 is, who is the man who will bring, who will begin to fight against the Amorites. It's, it, this is interesting because so far, Israel had not did, did have, had no need to ask this question. Why? Because all of the major judges that we have met thus far, they were raised by the Lord. And the Lord raised Othniel, and the Lord raised Ehud, and the Lord raised Deborah and Barak, and the Lord raised Gideon. But we don't get that statement with Jephthah. This is a little bit of that cycle, right? In degradation. The answer is Jephthah. So we're going to meet Jephthah now as we enter chapter 11, as we consider the word wisdom first. Jephthah was a wise man. But we won't take much time discussing his wisdom because Although he was a great warrior filled with wisdom, this story highlights not his wisdom, but his folly. We first meet Jephthah in verse 1 of chapter 11. So let's, let's read there. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. There's a sense in which this statement is profoundly sad. A great warrior, but an illegitimate son. There's a sense in which we just have to recognize this is not Jephthah's fault. It is not his fault that he was born out of the infidelity of his father. But it does speak volumes of the morality of Jephthah's father, doesn't it? 
Remember Gideon also had many wives and concubines. Friends, whenever, whenever sexual relations take place outside of marriage between a man and a woman in the Bible, we see disaster. We see catastrophe. Does God say that marriage is a relationship from, between a man and a woman? He absolutely does. Between exclusively a man and a woman. Where does he say that? In the beginning. He created them male and female. And they became one flesh. That's the relationship. That's the first family being formed. Jesus affirms that. Jesus affirms positively the goodness of a marriage that is between one man and one woman. When we see the disorder of the biblical fam family, we see immorality going rampant. So continuing verse 1, we read Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's son grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Echoes of Joseph here, right? Rejected by his brothers, and yet he would become the savior of his brothers. Look at verse 3. Then Jephthah fled. From his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So because of the rejection of his brothers, Jephthah lived in the wilderness. In chapter 9, we read that Gideon's son, Abimelech, hired worthless individuals. But Jephthah doesn't need to hire anybody here. He naturally attracts worthless individuals. Jephthah is depicted, depicted here similar to the, to the gathering demoniac in the Gospel of Mark alone, abandoned and in bad company. But when Israel felt the pressure from the Amorites, Ammonites, they saw the utility they had for Jephthah. So they asked him, to lead, to lead them, to be their leader. So Jephthah asked them in verse 7, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why are you coming to me now when you are in distress? And their answer is, they have no answer. They basically say, we need you now. The story of Jephthah is a reminder that leadership is hard. Leadership is often lonely. Leadership is often misunderstood. Leaders often have to lead people who are not willing to follow. So we are challenged in the story to be careful so that we don't view leadership in the same way the people of Israel saw it as a utility. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your soul, as those who will 
have to give an account. So because those leaders who are keeping watch over your soul will have to give an account, then let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, be easy to be shepherd. Make it easy for your shepherds to shepherd you. Why? Because if they're doing it with joy, it's better for you. It's better for you. So right now we're thinking about deacons, right? And here's a great prayer you should pray for your deacons right now and for the incoming deacons and for your pastor. Lord, show me how I can add to their joy as they seek to serve you and serve me. Would you commit to praying this prayer for us, for all of us? Show me how I can add to their joy as they seek to serve you and serve me. This is a biblical prayer. And you know what? The writer of Hebrews says, you will go so much better for you if that is true. But regardless of the difficult relationships, Jephthah agrees to take on the military leadership of Israel, and he displays incredible wisdom in diplomacy in verses 12 through 17. He corrects the historical misunderstandings of the kings of, of the king of the Ammonites. Jephthah asks, what do you have against me? And the king says, you stole my land when you came out of Egypt, but that's not true, right? When Israel came out of Egypt, Israel lived in the wilderness. They lived in tents. So from verse 19 on, Jephthah explains that Israel simply asked to pass through the land of the Amorites. But the king of the Amorites instead waged war against Israel. And because they initiated the war, the Lord, God himself, gave their land to the people of Israel. And since God gave the land to them, it is rightfully theirs. You see the argument here? In verse 24, here's a great argument that he presents. Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Very clever argument. He's saying, he's not saying your God is true. But if you believe, right, Ammonites, if you believe that your God has given you a land, would you not possess that land? Well, our Lord gave us this land, therefore we've possessed it. And then finally in verse 26, he says, listen, this happened 300 years ago. Why, why did you not bring this up earlier? Why are you bringing this up now? So, so Jephthah displays great ability of this diplomacy, trying to avert conflict. Well, but in spite of, in spite of all of this, Jephthah was not able to avoid military conflict. So in verse 28 we read, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. 
Jephthah is now ready to engage in war. And here's where we see his wisdom vanishing and his folly taking over. So let's consider his folly. In verse 29, we learn that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. This is an incredible statement. God gave him his own spirit. Not everyone in the old covenant had the spirit. This is a special gift. The role of the spirit in the old covenant and in the new covenant are different. In the new covenant, when we receive the spirit, we're born again. So the spirit plays a role in regeneration, among other things. And the indwelling of the spirit is permanent. Once you've received the spirit, right? Ephesians 1, you've been sealed. It's done. We need to not worry about the Lord ever removing His Spirit from us because in the New Covenant, the Spirit indwells permanently. Now, in the Old Covenant, the indwelling of the Spirit was task-oriented. God will give His Spirit so that a task could be accomplished. The, the tabernacle was, was accomplished by men who were given the Spirit. David was given the Spirit. Saul was given the Spirit. Prophets were given the Spirit. Why? So they could do a task, present a task on behalf of the Lord. This is why David prayed, Do not remove your Spirit from me in Psalm 51. Because in the Old Covenant, the role of the Spirit was task-oriented. In chapter 3, the Spirit of the Lord was on Othniel. In chapter 6, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. In chapter, now in this chapter, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah. And the Spirit of the Lord will enable Jephthah to save his people. And I wish we could stop right here. But we can't. Even after receiving the Spirit, which is the assurance that he would have victory, Jephthah commits himself to a foolish and tragic vow. This is important for us to remember because great men of God are capable of doing very foolish things. Which reminds us that only God is God. And only Christ is the Redeemer of his church. Jeremiah 17 verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in men. It makes his flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is why Jep, this, is, this was Jephthah's great mistake. He trusted himself. His own flesh. He trusted in men. And he turned away from God. Jephthah believed. That his ability to. Due diplomacy would assure him the victory that was already his. Look at the vow that Jephthah makes in verse 30, one of the saddest portions of the entire Bible. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I run in in peace, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. 
and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. By the way, in verse 31, the word whatever is probably better translated as whoever. From the very beginning, Jephthah had a human sacrifice in mind. Now, before we go much further into this reading, you may be asking yourself, um, this is in the Bible, shouldn't we do this too? Should we do everything that we read in the Bible? Well, let me give you two concepts that are important. The Bible either describes events or prescribes laws. The Bible never hides the flaws and the faults of its heroes. On the contrary, there are no heroes in the Bible that we don't know their faults, except for Jesus, because he has none. So what we're reading here is a description of an event rather than a prescription of a behavior. So from the very beginning, what Jephthah put off to do was wrong. He, he should have never done this. He was foolish and ungodly. And yet God gives him victory. That's amazing. Does God give him victory because of his vow? No. God gives him victory in spite of his vow. Does God give him victory because of his wisdom? No. The Lord gives him victory, victory in spite of his folly. Look at the results of this vow. Now starting in verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down to the mountains, and weep for my virginity, I, am, I and my companions. So she said, go. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. In other words, he presented his daughter as a burnt offering. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadites, four days in the year. What a tragedy. His only daughter sacrificed because the promises of God were not enough for Jephthah. The victory belonged to Jephthah because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, not because of his foolish vow. The word of the Lord, the work of the Lord was finished before the battle began, 
The victory was assured before the vow was made. Friend, if Jephthah knew the word of God, he would have known that human sacrifice is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.10 Therefore shall not be, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells for, fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. Remember, I said last week that our greatest strengths can also be our greatest weaknesses. And here we see Jephthah, who is great, a great negotiator, using his negotiating abilities to bargain with God, leading him to do the unthinkable. You know why Jephthah made the vow that he made? Because he did not believe God. He did not believe that God's spirit would be enough. You may be asking yourself, are vows wrong? Perhaps you've made a vow and you're seeking to keep it. And I would say, yes, vows are wrong when we use them as an attempt to manipulate the hand of God. God has his purposes. And they will come true. They will come to fruition. We don't need to bargain with God. We simply need to believe that if we have Christ, we have everything we need. We need nothing beyond that. We need to also trust the providence of the Lord. He will deliver us from our enemies. We need not add to the work of Christ. Every time we attempt to add to the work of Christ, we lose the work of Christ altogether. The gospel is enough, and we need not add to the gospel. Every time we add to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Now, maybe you want to make a vow because you want to consecrate yourself to the Lord. Is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Paul was a bachelor. And he was that because he wanted to serve the Lord. The Bible talks about fasting. The Bible talks about all the ways that we can consecrate our, ourselves to the Lord. These are not bad. But it's, it's a desire to display love to, the, to, to, to God and not a way to manipulate Him. The Canaanites often sacrificed children to Molech, one of their gods, God's people are called to be different. God's people need to have a higher view of the dignity of the human life. Jephthah was called to protect his daughter and not to sacrifice her because God protects his children. Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. In other words, the gift that Jephthah received. He sacrificed. Jephthah kills the heritage of the Lord. Jephthah kills the heritage that the Lord gave him because he, he thought he could bargain for the Lord's blessing. Is there a difference at this point between Israel and Canaan? Has Canaan so entered Israel's experience that Israel is now totally 
canonized? And the answer is no. There is a difference. Not in Israel's behavior. The difference is the God of Israel. Because although Israel is unfaithful like Canaan, unlike Canaan's gods, Israel's God is faithful. That's the difference. And although we see a leader here sacrificing his own daughter for self-gain, in a strange and surprising way, this leader points us to the faithfulness of God. You heard the story of Abraham with his only son, Isaac, earlier. And what does he say to Isaac? The Lord will provide the sacrifice. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. Abraham believed all along that God would deliver his son. And in his faithfulness, Abraham points us to the faithfulness of God. Because God does not demand the son of Abraham. He gives his own son. God sacrifices his own son. But he does so for our good. For our benefit. So that his people could find victory. God gives his son who shares his same nature. And what God does is right. Why? Because God could deliver his own son from death. This is a great love of God that he gives his son who is mighty and powerful. Whose death does accomplish victory over sin and over death. So friends, we are not called to sacrifice our children. We're not called to present a sacrifice. We're called to trust in the sacrifice that God has provided through Christ. We're called to trust the providence of the Lord and not try to bargain with God so we can have our way. While Jephthah lacked faith, we can have faith. And we can look to Christ and say, He is enough. I've sinned in so many ways. My sin has made such a great separation between myself and my God. Yes, I can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners, but God's providence is perfect. His spotless Son died on the cross for me. What else should I offer? And the answer is nothing. Salvation is by faith and faith alone because Jesus is enough. Unfortunately, we see the decadence of Israel continuing. And as we enter chapter 12, we see a conflict between Jephthah and Ephraim. Just like with Gideon, Ephraim is jealous of Jephthah. Because Jephthah fought the war against the Amorites and then called them. So this actually escalates into a civil war. Jephthah wins the war against Ephraim. And again, Jephthah killed those whom he was supposed to deliver. And when we come to verse 7, to the end of Jephthah's narrative, we hear the deafening sound of the words that are not there. 
Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. You know the words that are not there? The words that we see with all of the other judges, including Samson? And the land had peace. Jephthah failed to deliver peace to the land. How could he? He is the one who is waging war against the very people of God. Jephthah does not provide peace and he dies. That's the problem with the judges. All other five minor judges that we see in our passage today, same thing happens. There's no peace in the land and they all die. None of them bring ultimate peace. Just as Jephthah died, they too died. Chapter 10, Tola judged Israel for 23 years and then he died. Jair judged Israel for 22 years, then he died. Chapter 12, Ibsen judged Israel for 7 years and he died. Elon judged Israel for 10 years and he died. Abdon judged Israel for 8 years and he died. These judges gave no, last peace into, no, last, no lasting peace to the land. Their sons and daughters gave no lasting peace to the land. Why? Because all of the judges make evident our need for a better judge. One that can actually promote lasting peace. We read in 2 Samuel 7 that David was promised a son. And his son would sit on David's throne forever. Christ is our lasting peace. So friend, I ask you today, have you experienced the peace of Christ? Are you trying to bargain your way into heaven? Trying to outweigh your sin with your good? Or have you come to trust in the King who provides His own blood, His own sacrifice, and who tells you, abandon every attempt to justify yourself, come to me and find life. Have you abandoned works-based salvation and embraced salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone? If you turn to Christ, He will save you. And He will save you today. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need a king over us, like Christ. Help us not look to men for hope. Help us not look for our own devices. But help us, Lord, look to Christ, who is king forevermore. We pray in his name. Amen.